Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. All right, we're taping this on a Thursday. Super Bowl is a couple of days away. Casey Affleck is here. He has a new movie coming out, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, most important question for anybody who grew up in New England and Massachusetts, are you rooting for Tom Brady? Hell yeah. Okay, good. Absolutely. Do you, do you have a history with Tom Brady? Um, I have a, yeah, I've got a long, long love affair with Tom Brady, but I, I don't think he knows about it. Just it's one-sided. <laughs> um, I mean, no one has didn't done more for, for New England sports, I'd say. I mean, some people have Larry and, you know, a few others, but Russell. Uh, yeah. He's in that, he's in the top four. Yeah. Probably. I mean, he saved the Patriots. You grew up in, you grew up in Massachusetts. The Patriots were the black sheep. Yep. I was very young. I mean, Tom's been playing since, you know, the early 70s. So it's, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I mostly remember winning. Yeah. Um, we watched the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl in the same room at Kimmel's house. I brought Kornheiser there. Your brother was there with Matt Damon. The Patriots had hit a point where it seemed like those three Super Bowls that they had won were a mirage. And now we we're back to being the bad luck Patriots, Tyree catch, all these things. It's like, oh, we're just going to come close and get kicked in the nuts. And and then all of a sudden things flipped and it was complete chaos. And we won three more Super Bowls. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. And uh, that was, that was, those were good times, man. The Sox were winning. Patriots couldn't be beat. Wow. Great. Great. My kids, I had two kids born in 04 and 07. I mean, everything was just clicking. I had my my wife was pregnant during the 04 World Series. So we called my daughter the miracle fetus. And then my son, she was pregnant with him, the 07 World Series. So then I was thinking, like, hey, should I just keep having children? The Red Sox will keep winning the World Series. But then they won two more anyway. I stopped at two, but it just kind of kept going and going. You did what was that SNO one you did? You did the Dunkin' Donuts, the fake yeah. Dunkin' Donuts one with the I, I mean it was like the perfect use because I always feel like you and your brother and Matt Damon, three of the best dialing it up Massachusetts accents ever. I was glad they took advantage of that in a sketch. That was really fun. I wasn't I wasn't a uh, very good at SNL. Um that was the first time I'd done it and I just I just I haven't been in a ton of a lot of comedies either. I don't they just sort of let me do it. Um and I remember thinking like I don't think I'm really killing it here. But then uh, doing that skit, that was a pre-recorded one. And um, I sort of felt like, oh, I can do this. It was more like working on a movie or something. You know, you can right. do it 15 different ways and start over. And uh, um, that was a lot of fun. You know, going backwards to when you were in Goodwill Hunting, because I remember I love that movie and I was watching the director's commentary and it, I think your brother was one of the people on the commentary, but he was talking about how you're basically ad-libbing all this shit during the movie. So that that's not that much different than SNL, right? <laughs> uh, well, you know, on SNL, man, you have to stick to the cue cards a little bit. Um, I mean, I a few times I would I would I would misspeak or say something different or whatever. But um, 
mostly you got to kind of stay with the program. Um, but then when you do those pre-recorded things, those, uh, you know, little short films that they make, then you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah. And that, that was a lot, especially with that character. That was a lot like Goodwill. Um, I don't know why I ended up saying making up all my own lines in that movie. I think I mostly just felt like they had written all the, they had written themselves all the good lines. And I was like, well, fuck you. I'll just say what I want then. Yeah. There was one, I remember, I only saw this once, but I remember there was a scene with you in the baseball glove and Ben was explaining how they had no idea you were going to do that. And they were trying not to, not to make each other laugh in the scene. And, uh, and, and that scene was the one that they kept in the movie, I think. Right. Yes. I was a long time ago. I can't really remember, but I think that was in the movie. And at a certain point, if you're hanging out with your friends and you're making a movie, if you're lucky enough to do that, you know, you got 15 hour days. There's a lot of downtime. Pretty soon the things just evolve into trying to make each other laugh, just right. trying to entertain one another. Uh, and Gus Van Sant, the director, likes that kind of thing. So nobody was cracking the whip on us and saying, like, get back to the script, get to this or that. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, just kind of horsing around. Well, going backwards, I think you did this, whatever that, that what was it, the AFI thing that, that honored Matt Damon? <laughs> and you told a whole story. You told a whole thing about how him and Ben just used to torture you because you were literally the younger brother and you were just you were just tortured by those guys for years and years and years. I don't remember telling that story, but I do remember thinking like that was in a, a show to give Matt a lifetime achievement award. And he was probably like 43 at the time or something. And I just <laughs> right. thought, I'm not taking this seriously. Uh, yeah. I think I had a few photographs put up and doctored behind me on the thing just to make him look bad. And uh, <laughs> I told some story. I just did I said whatever I could to try to embarrass him. Um, I don't remember saying that they tortured me. They, you know, they were pretty good. Although the first time I ever met Matt was, um, tell this story. We took the same bus to school. I was, uh, in second grade and I had a girlfriend named Kamala and her older sister was a girl named Kafi. And, uh, she was in like seventh grade with Matt. I didn't know who Matt was. I was a much younger kid. Uh, but we waited on the same corner and we got on the same bus but because this girl who I really liked was sitting next, you know, she wanted to sit with her sister. So she went to, um, she would sit with her sister. So then I would go sit with her, which ordinarily someone at my age would not have been allowed in the back of the bus to sit, you know, with the older kids. Um, and at the time I was really into karate. Uh, yeah. And I was going to Fred Villari's school of defense. I was like a yellow belt or something, you know, I was eight, nine years old or something. And um, so I was wearing my gi to school, which I thought was pretty cool. And, um, and I sat down there on this, on this, uh, school bus, um, in the back there. And, and Matt said, Oh, so you're a, you're a yellow belt, huh? And he said, I'm a black belt in street fighting. And, um, Matt was not a black belt street. Matt's never been in a street fight. That's never been in a fight as far as I know. But I, so that's one of the, one of my favorite stories about him. Um, and he's, uh, I might've told that story at AFI, but I don't think that was as close as he ever got to torturing me. Uh, he's a, he's a pretty gentle, sweet guy. It's crazy that you've known him for that long. Cause you make it, you make goodwill hunting and obviously you grew up with Ben and then you've known Matt since you were in second grade. And then somehow Cole Hauser gets pulled in as the fourth guy and just tries to fit it. Cause he knew those guys went from dazed and confused or school ties. One of those movies. Yeah. And, uh, 
and just kind of gets pulled in as the fourth honorary person, right? Yeah, and he was a little intimidated about doing a Boston accent, which isn't that hard to, to learn, and he could have done it, but I think he just thought, like, everybody here is, like, really, really is from Boston, and so he just, he had a bunch of lines in the movie, but he kept either giving them away, or he would just say, like, I think my character's drunk in this scene, kind of must slur <laughs> his words or put his head down on the table, and right. ended up not saying anything. It was effective. I was living in uh, Charlestown when you guys were making that movie. I, when Damon was on the podcast, I told the story, but I'll tell it again. They had an improper Bostonian cover story about local kids making a movie. And and I remember reading it. I was like, oh, the guy from School Ties. And, oh, the O'Bannon from Dazed and Confused. Like, and it was like, just like, oh, I hope that, I hope that makes it. And then, yeah. you know, a year later, a year and a half later, it became what it became. And, you know, I, I can't imagine you were expecting anything close to that. We're, we're, you filmed that mostly in Southie, right? Yeah, we filmed it mostly in, in Southie. And um, am I rem- yeah, we did a little bit in Toronto. Believe they forced mm. they forced the production to shoot a little, some of the interiors in Toronto. I had done, the first thing I ever did was called To Die For, which was yeah. how, I, how we met Gus Van Sant. Um, that was also set in New England. And it was a true story about that teacher who had a relationship with her student and persuaded her student to kill her husband. Um, and um, I knew Gus from that, and we we stayed pretty good friends. We're still very good friends. And uh, so he called me up when I was I'd gone back to school after I did that movie, and um, I was in school. And he called and he said, "Hey, I read this script. I haven't finished it yet, but I read it. It's by these." two guys is Ben is Ben your brother and I said yeah yeah he's my brother you should finish the script it's really you know and uh he liked it and then um he ended up doing it so um I it's I knew that you know Gus was a great director I knew that he was just going to do a good job of it so I didn't think like and I had Robin Williams in it as well yeah so there was some sense that it was going to be a good movie um but yeah I didn't think that it would be I don't think anyone imagined it would be uh so popular to Die For was a, a weirdly crucial Nicole Kidman movie because it was really well-received and it's a good movie and I think it has some legs, but I think that was the movie after that she became like an A-plus list star. Before that, she was like a movie star who's married to Tom Cruise, but I don't... It seemed like her career was different after that. that and that was a yeah. really cool movie too. It was like black comedy, a little bit different, but now I think that's the kind of movie a lot of people have tried to rip off over the last 25 years. Yeah, it's true. Gus Gus Vincent's one of those directors where people steal him. Like he'll he'll do these movies. They're sort of considered like people like them a lot, but sometimes they're considered too arty or something. And then everyone steals it. And Nicole had done Dead Calm, which was a pretty cool Australian yeah. movie, um, and she was fantastic. And it's true, she was sort of in Tom's shadow just because they were married, which wasn't really fair. Um, and she wanted that part very badly. Uh, I think someone, Meg Ryan or someone was going to do it. And then um, and then Gus ended up casting Nicole Kidman. She was fantastic. I mean, then she went on to be, you know, she had a long, great career. Yeah, that was... She's incredible. It's funny. They they showed an old SNL that she hosted because sometimes they'll show the old ones on at 10 o'clock at night and it'll pop up on the DVR. And it was one that she hosted in 93. Stone Temple Pilots was the musical <laughs> band. And her monologue, the whole monologue was about people in the audience asking where Tom Cruise was. <laughs> and 
It's just like, hey, that's great, but where's Tom Cruise? And so you think like, I think to die for after that, it 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 probably flipped. When when Ben and Matt were were uh, living in LA and writing Good Will, you must have gone to visit them a couple times, right? What were you doing? You know, after high school, I was still seventeen, and me and a friend of mine drove out to LA. Uh, yeah, we want, you know, wanted to be actors. I didn't know, we didn't know anything about LA. Didn't have an agent, didn't, and uh, just kind of came out here. My brother was in school out here. I knew a couple other people living out here, and I spent the whole year auditioning. I didn't get anything, and then the end of the year, I got that movie to die for. After yeah. that, I just thought, you know, that wasn't a lot of fun being in LA and auditioning. So let me, I'll just go back to college and you know go do other stuff. Um, and they moved, so uh, I was living in Massachusetts. Those, some of those guys, me and uh, some other friends, including those two, we all lived together in, in a city called Somerville in Massachusetts. And, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And that's when they were, they were working on it then. They were trying to get it made. Um, so, yeah, I, I was around. And, Wait, and, hold on. Uh, where, where in Somerville? I got to know. We lived in Davis Square. I, I, that would have been my guess. Like one of those big old school houses that were kind of semi broken down, but yeah. the plumbing still worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mostly it still works. <laughs> <laughs> mostly every two months the plumbing goes goes haywire. Yeah. So uh, when uh, when Ben when that whole thing took off and those guys became like massive massive celebrities and you're watching it from the side, did it make you want to be famous or did it not want you to not make you not want to be famous? Not at all. Yeah, not I figured. I mean, it. You know. You can't complain. Those guys should never complain about, you know, anyone who's, who has that. You know, if you don't want that, you can quit. And pretty quickly, people forget about you. Yeah. Um, but uh, it isn't always uh, fun. Uh, and from, you know, being next to it, I could see, like, mm, I don't want this. I think they like it more. They, they wanted that more. We're less bothered by the kind of invasions of privacy. They didn't seem, they didn't mind that, you know, they didn't. Uh, so, but I, it didn't, you know, I, I was young enough to see sort of other people go through it early on uh, to see sort of like what was good about it, which was that it creates opportunities. You want to be an actor, you know, you get famous. Well, then you get to work with a lot of great people. Um, and there's also downsides too, you know, but uh, for whatever reason, it, it wasn't something that I was craving. Yeah, because with your career, you'll... If you even if you go and look at like your IMDb, you'll just disappear for like two years, and then you'll come back, and <laughs> and then all of a sudden there'll be the you know like you look at all of a sudden you're in all the Ocean's Eleven movies, and then uh, and then in 07, you do the the uh, assassination of Jesse James and Gone Baby Gone in the same year, and then you don't do anything for three more years after that. But <laughs> I think the 07 thing, uh, it's it's funny that the Jesse James has really has legs. I think that's now considered one of the best movies of that decade by a lot of people. And I, I don't know if that was the case when it came out. I think it was respected. You, you know, you obviously did well, you got nominated for it, but I don't think that was the consensus coming out of 07. Like, Oh, that's going to be one of the decades movies. Now it seems like that's a consensus. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it's funny how that happens. I, I, that movie was kind of a bomb Warner brothers, you know, uh, they had really good people there running Warner Brothers at the time, and but they just couldn't fit that into what the studio was. It wasn't a part of like, it wasn't like other movies that they kind of market. And um, 
So it, it was a tough one and it didn't do well. And, uh, but it, it has now since become, and also it was a Western. So people, you know, some people like Westerns, some people really love them. A lot of people just aren't interested at all. So it was hard to market. And also Brad Pitt dies, you know, two thirds of the way through or something like yeah. that. And so it was kind of like a lot of people that were going there to see a Brad Pitt movie and then I kill him. And they're like, are we still, why are we still watching this movie? You're like, it's in the fucking title. <laughs> What'd you think? He was going to live at the end? <laughs> um, it didn't do well. It has become uh, recognized. You know, Andrew Dominic, who made a movie called Chopper before that, he, he has a movie about Marilyn Monroe coming out. Hasn't, isn't out yet, but I've seen it, and it's uh, unbelievable. Just great. So he's, he's an incredibly talented guy, and he works on these movies he doesn't just crank them out. He stays with it for two years, editing it and refining it. And I think they get to a point where they aren't just the kind of thing that, that pops immediately, but then people, uh, they learn over time that it's they're great. It's an amazing movie. And it's I, I'm st I still have cable and DirecTV. I'm, I'm old. But, you know, so we, that's why we have a podcast called The Rewatchables because a lot of times you're just flicking channels like, oh, this movie, oh, I'll jump in. Yeah. It, it didn't seem like that would be a rewatchable movie, but I feel like it is because it's so different. And there's also like a million fucking people in it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, it's just like every actor, like, oh, that guy. Whoa. Hey, whoa. And it yeah. just kind of keeps going and going. Yeah, when you, um, one, yeah. when, um, when you were working with your brother, were you, was that something you wanted to do? Were you nervous about it? You know, you your, know your big brother's directing you. Like what, what were the, what were the, um, things that concerned you heading into that? Um, I wasn't too concerned. I mean, at the time, he hadn't then made anything. And so no one really thought that he was going to, you know, make a good director because usually for whatever reason, people tend to like doubt instead of believe out right out of the... Uh, well, the people kind of so, written, written him off too because he'd had a couple bad movies and they're like, ah, Affleck, he's out. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think that's why he wanted to direct is because he was having a harder time maybe uh you know people have all kind of ups and downs in their career and he was he was not having a good sort of run as an actor um but i knew that he was like a really smart guy and had good taste and uh, so i had already done jesse james uh, in fact i was shooting it in canada and he came up to the set to visit uh and he said hey do you want to do this movie um and i think that you know he'd probably had I not had just gotten the lead in like a Warner Brothers movie, he wouldn't have been able to get it made with me. So right. he, I think he kind of thought like, oh, shoot, maybe Casey can get my movie made. And so then he put me in it. And I, I wasn't concerned, but we did we did fight a lot. Um, but just <laughs> in the way that brothers do, you know, uh, sometimes you work with a director, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty charged relationship and you can fight a lot. And you end, I usually end up like you know, really having a good, close, strong bond with the director. Um, but, but in the, but in the middle there, while it's happening, it can be, it can be difficult the thing, but you just met the person a few months ago. So you're not really going to just like start yelling at each other. You know, you want, you're still trying to get along. Whereas yeah. then, you know, we'd known each other forever. We were very comfortable fighting. So, so we were just sort of, as soon as we started disagreeing about the smallest things, they just turned into a big fight. And I, looking <laughs> looking back, you know, I think people thought like, these guys really aren't getting along here. But um, that's just how we relate, you know, I guess. I knew him a little bit back then when he was making that. And one of the things he told me that made me think the movie was going to work was he was fanatical about using real Boston people as like the extras 
and the little side pieces and stuff like that. He he had the same thing that always drove me crazy about Boston movies where they sometimes didn't seem authentic enough. There were especially if you I think certain cities are like this. I think Philly's like this. There's there's maybe Chicago's like this a little bit. If you're going to set the movie in there and really root it with the real people, the people who are going to like live and die there and have the kids that then grow up there and they live and die there and then they have kids. I have to feel like those are the real people. And I, I think one of the smartest things he did with that in the town was to um, cast real people that seemed like they were from Boston because they were, you know? And that's one of the reasons I really like that movie. Uh, I don't know why people who make movies in, in Boston um, more than in other places, they really like to do that. I guess that they feel like there's a, there's a strong sort of like a sense of place there still and where in other places they've been more homogenized by whatever culture, whatever yeah. it is. And, um, but in Boston, there's still a sense of like, Oh, this is in Boston. These people have, I still have accents and they still, there's a sense of like what it means to be someone who lives there. That is changing, but it's, uh, just as like the city has been gentrified or so much over the past 20 years, but, um, all other movies, you know, when I did, when we did Manchester by the sea, they, Kenny did the same thing. He cast a, he cast a lot of people there. He also mixed in a lot of like theater actors and stuff because he comes out of that world and they blended in perfectly. You know, right. there are people I'm like, wow, Kenny, where'd you find this person? He's like, oh, she was on Broadway last year. I'm like, she, that's amazing. <laughs> she seems like she's been living in Lynn for 35 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, I've thought a lot about why so many movies are in Boston. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's the accent. Um, the fact that the downtown, it's you have these identifiable pieces. I think for the viewer who's not even there, they there's just things they know. Like they get water. Oh, there's water around the city. They know, oh, there's Fenway Park and the Sitco sign. Oh, there's like the big park. Like it, it's kind of condensed in the right way for a movie. And then you got the little side pocket towns. Whereas like if you set a movie in Philly, I think it would be probably I like I don't have in my head what Philly is, you know. So I wonder if that's a piece of it. But I also think like just a lot of people who came to Hollywood or, or have some sort of weird Boston tie, which I don't, I don't really there's, understand the there's math. There's a lot on of that. people from, I know, no, it's a, yeah, because it's you know far. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, how did they get here? It's uh, there are a lot of people from Massachusetts out working. Mindy Kaling, John yeah. Krasinski. I mean, the list. Errol Morris. I don't know. For some reason, it just goes on and on and on, and has for a while, but more recently. It might be because there's been a big tax incentive. They want movies and TV to shoot Massachusetts, so they yep. give them a big break on the taxes. So that means that there's tons of productions go there. They end up hiring local. Those people get a few breaks, and then they're like, hey, I'll go give it a shot in Hollywood, you know, and they go out. So then there's a lot of people out here. Uh, or we're just, like, super, super talented. I don't know. Right. <laughs> One or the other. Or or maybe the cold weather and the and – the, uh... The, all the tough sports losses maybe push people toward being more creative as some sort what, of what tough outlet. <laughs> well, what? I'm talking way back now. Oh, yeah, now maybe back. the next generation is so much happier with sports. Maybe that's maybe it's going to die away. <laughs> people will be less creative. Well, you know, one thing is, man, I, when I go home, um, I find that a lot of those people just there are people that mostly it's people who have just moved there. You know, that like Cambridge, where I'm from, just didn't used to be all young urban professionals. It was yeah. people who had li have been there for many generations. And just in my lifetime, that's changed completely. That's a bit of a bummer. I know that life has changed, but it is still, I wish that when I was there playing at the park with my kids and stuff, I was seeing like the kids, people who I knew and grew up there with, um, just not that way anymore. Um, so 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Char- I lived in Charlestown for like 10 years and the grocery store downtown was Johnny's Food Master. He was grim. <laughs> I, I went back there like a year ago and it was now Whole Foods. And I was like, oh, Oof. there you go. <laughs> so long, so long, Johnny. <laughs> Not nothing against Whole Foods. I just thought it was kind of telling that uh, you hate we, Whole Foods. Well, you hate I mean, it. from you hate John, it. Johnny's Foodmaster, you're holding up the seventy five percent ground beef. Like, kind of seeing if it talks back to you. Uh, you mentioned Manchester by the Sea, which you won an Oscar for, which I think most people know. Um, that movie's incredible. It's also grueling in a way that um, I would say only a handful of movies I've seen in my life. Like that scene with you on the hill with Michelle Williams, it's one of the toughest four minutes I think I've ever spent in a movie theater, you know, and, and somehow, and we'll get to the movie you have coming out now, which also has some really tough moments, but like what, after you finish filming a movie like that, what happens to you like mentally and physically? Cause I, I got to imagine doing the same takes over and over again with something that that serious and profound and, whatever, like that's just got to take something out of you. The whole movie took something out of me for sure. It it was, uh, you know, sometimes um, you go and you do a movie and you just, um, you know, you give it your best shot. Um, But it's, it's just not that taxing. And whenever I've talked about sort of movies being hard, I just hate, I hate that. I hate the way I sound. I just, it, it's something about it just sounds like I've worked too many other jobs yeah. to sit here and say that acting is a hard job. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. they've been, I've been done a lot of stuff that is actually hard. Um, but that was hard. And, you know, it's just something that shouldn't be talked about because it just sounds so lame. But um, it, it was a, it, the, the thing about that scene on the hill with Michelle Williams is so good and, and all the other scenes in there, you know, like, I don't know, every scene in that movie, was that Kenny Lonergan wrote such a good script. It just did, it did a lot of the work for us. And um, he's also such a, a, just a like bizarrely brilliant guy about people's behavior and about storytelling and that uh, he's just a master at it. And so those, those, the movies that he, he writes and directs, they just work really well. He really touches, really moves people. Um, I just don't want to take any credit for it. It's just not, it, it was just something that, uh, when I read the script, I, I cried and, uh, so did everybody else. And the same thing happened when you saw the movie and, um, there were a lot of really good actors in it, Lucas and Kyle Chandler and, um, Michelle Williams, all these people, and they're all great, but I, uh, you know, all the credit has to be to, to Kenny, who, who's just a genius. And, you know, I was listening to Will Ferrell was on your show. I can't remember when it was, but I listened to him. And he was talking about how um, he was thinking in the future, people will watch, you know, he wondered whether or not people would watch movies or they would just watch their favorite scenes like on YouTube or something, you know, like people just go in and sort of watch like they'll return to, you know, they've seen the movie once, then they'll just like look up their favorite scene on YouTube and watch that again and enjoy it. And they won't, they won't sit and rewatch movies over and over. And I was thinking how I don't have any scenes like that in my whole career. Like I've been, when I go to do, like sometimes you go to a talk show and they want to show one clip of a movie you've done. I've never been in that position and had the clip be any good. And I always wondered like, why does my, anytime I'm in a movie or something, the, the, you can't find one scene on its own that's very good. Some of those movies have been really good, you know, but Will Ferrell, 
every single one of his scenes is great. Like if he's in a scene, it's great. It's going to be funny. You can show it and watch it for two minutes and you'll laugh, you know. I just don't have any of those. Um, whether it's well, you have man, you have dramatic versions of those. You don't have like the hilarious versions of those. I I definitely don't have the hilarious versions of those, and I'm not sure that the draw. Every sometimes when I watch a few scenes, sort of out of context in movies, I just think like, well, that's not that interesting. It's just never that impressive. Except the one time in my whole career was the one scene I did with Will Ferrell, which is like I, you can watch that scene out of context and it works. So I I. You know, I think um, that like movies like Manchester and scenes like that scene with Michelle, even those there's and the way that Kenny tells stories, it's hard to lift one thing out. There's something else going on that he's doing that is sort of carrying the audience with him. And 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 that's why that movie ends up being so devastating is because it's uh, it, it sort of moves you in a way that's totally unexpected. And it's it's done like magic by, by Lonergan. Well, and then you also have Damon's the guy who wants to make it and he can't make it. Get, and gives you this part and produces it instead. This guy you've known since you were in the second grade. And what was, I remember talk, when he came on and we talked about it, it, there was no like, fuck, I'm, I'm, that should have been me or any of that stuff. He was like literally so happy that the movie worked out and that you were great in it. And he's had his own like incredible success. And it really did seem genuine, you know, where I wonder like some people like deep down, like, fuck, that part was awesome. I wish, I wish that had been me, but I didn't feel like he was like that at all. Like, I feel like he was genuinely happy for you. Yeah, I think he probably was. He's had a lot of success. I don't think he's... Yeah, he's doing fine, Matt Damon. He's, he's all right. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what Do you think that director's a genius? I've asked this question a couple of times on podcasts to actors because he strikes me as a particular... There's He's a one of one. He's like a unicorn. I don't feel like there's anybody else like him. There, There's some statistic about peep directors... 98% of directors or 90% or something, I don't know what it is, make one movie. Uh, and then there's like, uh, you know, the rest make or make more than that. And it's because most people, they go and make a movie, then they, uh, it's no good. You know, it just turns like, it's easy to, you know, the, the skills that it takes to get a job as a director are sitting in a room and sort of getting people excited, persuading them that what you're going to do is good. That's a whole different skill set than actually being good as a director, you know. And he is someone who um, has that second skill set. He, he really, you know, in a way that other people don't. He hasn't made anything bad. Uh, talking about Kenny Largan, he has he's made three movies and they're all amazing. Um, so... People should just throw money at him. You know, if the, the industry was if got together and thought, like, how do we want to save the movie industry? Let's just give all the resources to the people that make the best stuff that really reaches people. He'd be at the top of the list. You know, he's uh, he's batting a thousand. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's a genius. It's because I remember the, the Ruffalo Laura Linney movie which I think is one of the best movies of that decade. I, I know I've now said this twice about two different movies, but I love that movie. <laughs> I really do. I, I think that's that movie just shouldn't have been as good as it was for how kind of simple it was, but it's not simple, which is why it's such a cool movie. So I was always following him after that. And then he made that Anna Paquin movie that they argued about the length. And yeah. I don't think they even really settled it. And you can buy the one director's cut on Amazon versus the one that shows on cable. But that movie is that movie will reappear every once in a while. And that movie is also really fascinating. And that was like, what, five years before Manchester. So I'm glad, my point is I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out in a big way for him because you could see the talent. I wonder though, I would love to see what his version of like 
an eight episode TV series is because a lot of his stuff is long anyway with a lot of different characters. Yeah. That's what that's what I would love to see somebody throw money at him with. You know, that would be great. That would like be just, amazing. Here's some money. Make give us eight, like almost like with David E. Kelly when he does uh, the Big Little Lies type things. It's like seven episodes. Get it here. Here's yeah. some money. Get some actors. Go. Um, that would be neat. The movie you made, uh, which which is coming out now, even though you made it like two years ago. Uh, our friend. It was initially my friend. Now it's our friend. Like. You probably filmed that one, 2018, 2019? 2019. Yeah. So it's, you did it two years ago and now it's finally out. It's in this weird pandemic world where it's released on demand. There's no theater. It got held. It was supposed to come out a year ago. Um, Like I, you've never had an experience like this. Like what, when you think about this movie, what do you remember about it now? It's been two years. Um, Every movie, you know, when it's over and then you have to talk about it a little bit later when it's coming out, it's hard for me to kind of, you're in such a different place. Like you go, it was making movies like Summer Camp, you know, it's such a like contained little experience. So you go, show up, you make it, and then you leave wherever you're shooting and go back to your real life and you kind of leave it all behind. Um, So it's hard. But yeah, after a couple of years, it's even harder to to remember. I think that, you know, I had a great time with Jason Siegel. Dakota Johnson uh, is great in the movie. It's a true story. Um, it, and, uh, it's, it's a nice message, you know, this, uh, which I like, it's not really why I like pick movies, but it is what I like about that, about this movie. I sort of just thought like, this is something that whether it turns out and it's good or it's not, it doesn't matter in the end, it's going to be something that I feel like I agree with that. Like the spirit of the movie is just, is just right. Um, and I've done a lot of movies where, I thought that they were great characters, but it was like a lunatic or a serial killer or an assassin or someone. And I go like, you know, I was younger and I just wanted to play that part or I liked that it was dark material or whatever. And um, I don't know, these days I've been thinking, uh, you know, trying to find things more where I'm, I kind of like the spirit of the movie. And, and, and Our Friend is one of those, one of those um, because it's about a guy who um, has got nothing, his life feels totally empty. Um, he feels sort of aimless and depressed and uh, he drops everything uh, to go live with this, these friends, uh, uh, his friends who, whose lives are in crisis because um, the, the wife is dying of cancer. And so he sort of puts everything from his own life aside and he goes to take care of these other people. And by doing so, he kind of rediscovers things that he likes about himself um, and you know, sounds kind of hokey, but the, like, I just, I just love that that sort of message about you know being of service to other people and how how it sort of is good for everyone. And it's a real life story. And you you don't play the friend; you play the husband. So for people listening who haven't seen it, Jason Siegel's the friend. Yeah. Who I think's had a really interesting career. He we, I did a podcast with him last year, and I really enjoyed it. Like I really love talking to him. Back back when we could do podcasts where the two people are in the same room. Now mm-hmm. everything's on Zoom. But I thought he was excellent in this movie. I, I thought the the three leads were all really, really good. But he kind of, if if he doesn't do as well as he did in that part, I think the movie falls apart. You know how every movie has like that one, there's the one performance that if, it's almost like in sports, you know, like the Bucks this weekend. Like if Fournette sucks, I don't think they can win. <laughs> um in, in your movie, if, like, if Jason Siegel's like a C plus, the whole movie falls apart because you have to buy that this guy 
his life's in crisis yeah, and yeah. he's going to give up all this stuff, but I'm also kind of worried about him. I just yeah. thought he navigated it really well. And, and, uh, and by the end of it, you, you just bought all the relationships. He's a really good actor. I think yeah. you know, pe- people just think of you as the stuff that you've done. So he's done a bunch of comedies. He did a bunch of like Judd Apatow movies and he did a bunch of, which are also great. And he did a bunch of like TV stuff. And so they don't think of him as fitting in and as in a like more of a dramatic role. He's great. And there's no reason yeah. he shouldn't. And I, he'll do more of that. And uh, he's a lovely, lovely guy. Sports movies. Like no one will let me do a sports movie or a comedy because they just think I'm the guy who does the Manchester by the Sea or Jesse James or whatever. That's and, your uh, fault, though. I feel like you could get this stuff done. I can't. I've tried. I tried to do a movie. I wanted to make a movie about those two Yankees in the 70s who traded. traded I remember families. that. Fritz, Fritz Peterson and Mike, Mike Kekich. Kekich. Yeah. Kekich. Yeah. Ah, oh, such a great story. Wait, I mean, you bought you bought the story. you bought the rights to it though. I, I wrote a, I wrote the script for Warner Brothers, um, but the but MLB is notoriously difficult giving their permission to use the names, team logos, all that kind of stuff. So there came a point. It was a pretty sordid tale. Um, I think it was an interesting story because it's really about the salaciousness aside of two players trading wives, families, dogs, houses, everything. Uh, that stuff, you know, notwithstanding. By the way, is, for people listening, he's not kidding. That's literally what happens. They they traded their lives for each other. These two pitchers on the Yankees, yeah. everything, fell, wives, kids, houses, the whole thing. Yeah, it escalated. They failed. They they did it like they were swingers one night. They sort of like spent a night with each other's wives. Then they kind of fell in love. They tried to make it stick. They tried to keep it a secret, and the story ended up. Um, breaking in a really interesting way because at the time, women were not allowed to cover, they weren't allowed in the locker room, female journalists, to cover these, to to cover the team. Uh, But the Yankees were kind of, they were in the basement and the Mets were very, uh, were having a good season. And some of the better journalists wanted to go cover the Mets. And one of them who had been traveling with the Yankees for a long time bailed to spend the season with the Mets. And there was a a woman who was... um, tried to cover this, the Yankees and she wasn't allowed into the locker room. She was kind of like barred. And yeah. so when when this story came out, um, people heard about it, but it was not covered because at the time, journalists, it was it was kind of gauche. It was, you weren't supposed to talk about players' private lives. Right. And um, not the way it is now. So things were really different. And that was just considered like kind of gross. But um this woman, had, it was treated so terribly by being, she wasn't allowed to cover the team. So she thought like, okay, well, I'll write about this. And in Ladies Home Journal, she wrote a story about these two this, these two players uh, trading families. And then the story broke. And then it became national news. And Johnny Carson was making fun of him every night on TV. And it was really the first time that that happened. And in and, and part, it was because none of the other journalists wanted to be scooped. And it was in part because Watergate had happened <clears throat> and Woodward and Bernstein were heroes, national heroes. And a lot of the sports journalists wanted to feel like they could be heroes too, that they could write about, they could be investigative journalists, not just cover the games. Um, and these guys were traveling with the team out of an era of like Mickey Mantle, those yeah. Yankees. They, and they would see all kind of stuff. And in the there was a cover it up era. It was the cover it up era. They were all doing drugs. They were doing drugs during the games. They were doing drugs at night. They were all fooling around and having affairs and none of it was written about. And so suddenly the journalists thought, hey, we can write about this. It's big news. We get our names in print. And then uh, they did. And so it, it sort of got blown open and the Yankees were embarrassed. Uh, 
they canceled Family Day that year for one thing. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yeah, and um, and these guys, uh, these they one of the couples tried to make it stick. They, uh, Fritz Peterson um, and Suzanne uh, tried to. They stayed together forever for the rest of the. They, they're still together, and the other uh, couple broke up pretty quickly. They broke up right away. It just didn't work. Um, so it was a really fascinating story. I thought it said a lot about the times. It said a lot about like the social landscape. It was also right when uh, the Yankees had been bought. Steinbrenner wasn't even allowed to go to the stadium. But like everything in sports was changing. The reserve clause was going to be overturned so that these guys could negotiate uh, collectively. At the time, players were like in the offseason, they're selling cars, used cars, you know, because they weren't making any money. And the owners didn't want to pay them. Steinbrenner was brilliant because he came in and said, um, pay them. Make them make them stars. You know yeah. what I mean? Give them a fortune. Make them stars. We'll make them wear suits. We'll make them shave their faces. We're going to turn them into these uh, household names. And they are going to sell jerseys. They're going to get people in this. They're going to be, we're going to televise it. He sort of saw the future of it all. It uh, led to Reggie Jackson. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it sounds like baseball swinger ice storm. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of sleazy side of it, but there's a lot of art to it. Uh, it was also the birth of the modern family. It was like divorce. Divorced families can work. They can fully, yeah. they can break and come back together. And at the time, it was such a taboo. Everyone was humiliated that they were in this like broken family. Truth was. They had, you know, at least Fritz and his and his wife had a really happy uh, family. So I love that story. I've tried to make a couple others. I got one about the chaplain of the 49ers and uh, the Golden State Warriors right now, which we're we are writing. Oh, so you're years. you're really trying to do you you want a sports movie? You want this on your resume? Yeah, that, I mean, I love sports. I grew up well, I grew up being wishing I was a professional athlete and having no shot in hell. Uh, so here I am, just trying to like, you know, to make a sports movie. I got to say, I thought I loved your brother's basketball movie. I thought it was really good. And it's been on cable. And uh, first of all, they nailed the basketball scenes. Because I like, I judge movie first, but then also you have to get the sports scenes right or I really get upset. And I thought all the basketball scenes in that movie were really authentic. Usually when they make basketball movies, they always fuck those up or there's what's the one guy in there. What's your favorite? What's your favorite sports movie? So... It used to be Hoosiers in the Natural for a long time, right? Yes. And now I've seen all these movies so many times that now it, now it's just weird for me. Like probably Rocky Three is probably my favorite sport. Just in terms of like if all of them were on at the same time, what would I gravitate to? It might be Rocky Three. What about you? I think Hoosiers in the Naturals are, are I would have said that. So those are those have got to be the best. And I don't get sick of them. Also, I think Moneyball... Is um is like rarely totally talked agree. about, but it's fantastic. Yeah. Totally uh, agree. Yeah. That's I think Moneyball's been the best one of the last ten years. Warriors kind of growing on me. I think that was really good. Um, it's it's an MMA movie. I'm I'm counting it. Um, but then going back, it's funny. Longest Yard came out 46, 47 years ago at this point with Burt Reynolds. I still think that movie's good. That's about as far back as I'd go. But um, I was watching Rollerball with James Caan probably. I don't know, two, three months ago. That Those 70s sports movies are really fun to rewatch, like North Dallas 40, Bad mm -hmm. News Bears I watched with uh, oh, my yeah. son. It's so politically incorrect. People would have like a fucking stroke if it happened now. Um, I think the the probably my favorite inappropriate one is Fast Break with Gabe Kaplan. 
which uh, I don't even think don't they're remember. allowed to show on cable. Yeah, he basically, he goes to Vegas. He brings this kind of ragtag group of people who don't belong in college and tries to turn this basketball program around. Mm. So what? It, so you have how many sports movie possibilities here? Three? I've got this one about Earl Smith, who is the chaplain of the... Um, uh, he wrote a book called Death Row Chaplain, and it's about his time on... Um, uh, working in San Quentin. I played baseball in San Quentin a little bit. I played in a baseball team, and uh, we would go up and play the prisoners in San Quentin. This guy started that program, uh, and he was, in the 80s, he went and got a, he was shot six times in his face and neck when he was a young Jesus. man. And uh, he was in a coma, and he came out of the coma. He decided to sort of get his, go straight, stop dealing drugs and stop gangbanging and stuff, and go become go to seminary, become a, um, the chaplain. And he, and he went to San Quentin at a time when that prison was in terrible, terrible shape. Uh, and he showed up there and he, and he was hoping that he was going to save some people. Um, and he was frustrated. No one was really, he couldn't get traction with any of the guys there. He felt very, he felt like he was not helping anyone. And then he decided to start a baseball team inside the prison as a way of bringing people from different gangs together. It worked and it's lasted until now. They still have the team there, the organization. Um, it was interracial. It was, uh, mm. it was everything that people said it wouldn't, it couldn't possibly be. Um, and he then left San Quentin and he went on to, you know, work for 49ers and, and uh, Warriors. And, um, that sounds promising. It's great. And um, so that's in the works. And, um, um, you know, best prison sports movie ever. Tell me. Jericho R Mile. Richard Pryor. Jericho Mile. Michael Mann's first movie. Guy, guy, Peter Strauss is a guy, I think it's on Amazon. And I promise anyone listening, you will not regret renting the Jericho Mile. Peter Strauss is in prison and he runs around the track every day. And somebody kind of sees him as like, wait a second, that guy's going pretty fast. This coach, bring him in. They're like, you could probably actually qualify for the Olympics here, but you got to do it on a professional track. But he's not allowed to leave because he murdered somebody. The inmates come together. They build him a track so he can try to qualify. I won't spoil the ending, but I it's fucking it. great. Michael Mann's first movie led to Thief, led to everything else after that. That was it. It was a TV movie. So wow, Brian Dennehy's in it. it. Brian Dennehy, all these different people. What what leading actor or sports movie performance are you the most jealous of and wish you had been cast in instead? Moneyball? Moneyball's a good part. Yeah, Moneyball's a great part. Moneyball's, I mean, um, Redford was like, you know, in his 40s playing a kid who's like 16 or something. Right, that's the natural. <laughs> that was, they used some good shadows in, that, in the, Glenn, <laughs> the early Glenn Close scenes. It's like dark or, yeah. So I maybe could be cast as that. I don't think that would that would go over these days anymore. But um, he pulls it off. He's he's the legend, the, the greatest. Um, what else? I wrote I wrote a review of when I was writing for ESPN.com when Damon did that rugby movie, Invictus, and the guy that he played was like this mountain of a guy. He was like six foot five. And I was like, Damon's like five nine. He's playing this huge guy. And Damon emailed me. He's like, I'm five foot eleven, motherfucker. Like half joking, but half serious. Uh, I'll tell you right now, he's joking by about three and a half inches. That's how much he's <laughs> that's how much he's joking. Um, but it's true, man. It's hard to find actors. All these athletes and these you come across these great sports stories, and the guy's huge. 
and actors are all 5'3". And I don't know why. So it, I wanted to do the Josh Hamilton story. I wrote a script yeah. for that. Great story. The kid, he was like junior in high school and he was 6'5", you know, 210 pounds. He was just like, um, just a... Uh, bizarrely like big uh, athletic dude at a very uh, early age. So hard to cast that one. Um, that's a, I love that story. It just kind of went south. The movie ends when he gets back into baseball. Um, he, you know, he wins the home run derby. He's he, the, the, this is a guy who had been thrown out of major league baseball for three strikes rule. Right. You know, he violated the substance abuse rules. They, they threw him out for good. And then they let him back in and, um, beautiful story um about his redemption but then sort of his life then sort of fell apart a little bit after that uh so it's he almost to, had to make it right when he was redeemed yeah and yeah. then yeah you know we here's what we don't need anymore of boxing movies i think we're good for like about eight more years yeah it's it's and it seems like every great actor they feel like they have to do one it's like you got to put that notch on your belt that you got in amazing shape and yeah, I'm in the best shape of my life. I trained with this guy for three months and I did it. And I played yeah. like Rocky Marciano or something. I, I'm whole, good with those. The whole those. time they're just thinking about the poster, you know? Totally. Like, I'm and how like... ripped they're going to be. Yeah. <laughs> We're good. And meanwhile, on the, on the flip side, like there's been like barely any hockey movies, which I don't understand. Like Slapshot came out in 1977 and it's still The Godfather. And it's like no, nobody's even made a run at Slapshot since. There's been a lot of basketball movies, but they're almost always like the coach trying to save the the kind of ragtag group of whatever. At least Ben's movie flipped it where the guy had his own problems. Um, football's been a mess, but, you know, there's a sweet spot. I'm going to say like that 91 and 93, like a movie like Rudy, which I think was 93, which I think Rudy's really good. I think Rudy's held up, even though the real Rudy is super annoying. Um I wish they just made more of those. Maybe now we're in the streaming era. Maybe Netflix, Amazon, those places. It's like 20 million. You get a sports movie and everyone's going to see it. Well, you know, soccer. I mean, so now people worry so much about selling their, their movies overseas. And they say, ah, no one cares about baseball overseas. No one cares about American football overseas. You know, uh, but but soccer, you know, uh, there was a story I really loved. I wanted to make about a kid who was a refugee and... and um, in Africa, and he played. He was in, living in his refugee camp, and um, all he was—they realized he was great at soccer very quickly. Mm. And the, um, they kept sort of like put, you know, bumping him up to uh, traveling him around and playing in other camps. And the whole time, he was just looking for his parents because he was an orphan. He ended up being uh, finally the playing in some like UN game, and then the Galaxy spotted him, and they brought him to the United States. And he still could hadn't found his family. Uh, and then he put himself through school in the U.S. And then he went back to Africa and he found his mom. Really beautiful story. That's one you might be able to tell now. But you're right, people. There's also a kind of irreverence in a lot of sports movies that, like, right now doesn't doesn't fly. Call it political incorrectness or irreverence. Right. There's a certain you know thing that um, uh, it's, it gets tricky. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know hockey. That's why I watch a lot of the 70s, 80s ones with my son, who's now 13. Like his one of his favorites and one of mine, too, is Bad News Bears of Breaking Training, the second one, when they steal the van and drive to the Astrodome. And it's like a bunch of 13-year-olds. It's just like it would just never happen now. But um, it's just fun to kind of relive those. But I think you're right. with like the casting part is why so many of these stories can't happen. Like Hakeem Olajuwon, 
his story is amazing. It's a hundred percent a movie. Like he's playing soccer in Nigeria and somebody sees how good his feet are and they convert him to basketball comes over here. He's at the university of Houston. But like, how do you cast that movie? He's the seven foot gazelle. You're yeah. not finding an actor, you know, at least like Ali is about as far as you could push it when they got Will Smith. And even that, it was like the Ali shadow hung over. Ali was such like an indelible character. It was hard to even think of somebody playing him in a movie. Yeah. I mean, I got this theory that anyone can be an actor. People always, you know, we've worshipped for a while now sort of movie stars and and as it's sort of it's a rare, a rare talent. And and there's some people like Will Smith who are just incredibly watchable and likable and charming yeah. and talented. But I, I, there are other people who have never been in anything and they're just amazing in movies. And I think it's because it's the, the director knows how to to help them along and make them make it work. So, it, and it might be that, you know, you just have to find a guy who's seven feet tall and have a really, really good director and just, you get a fantastic Kim Olajuwon story. Um, well, the Safdie and- brothers did it with, uh, with the uh, uncut gems where it was supposed to be Embiid and then he couldn't do it. And they got KG and they, I thought KG was really good in that movie, whatever they tapped into his charisma and made it work. And I really felt like it was, he was acting. It was good. Yeah. yeah. Well, He's- I support your quest to come up with, um, with the next great sports movie. I'm always worried. We're just going to run out. Last thing I'll mention before we go. Um, my wife is a big crier. So we watched this movie, your new movie last night, but I didn't tell her what it was about and she had no idea. And, Sometimes when she cries during a movie, I'll always look over and and I'll just start laughing and then she'll get mad, but she'll be crying. So I didn't look at her the whole movie. And then it ended and I looked at her and she, I could hear her sniffling, but it wasn't like major, like breakdown. And then I looked at her and she was like, and it just freaking waterworks. She, it just like all hit her um, at the end for some reason. Um, it's an emotional movie. I think what's interesting about a movie like this in this day and age in a movie theater, everybody tries to be kind of cool, you know, like nobody, you're around all these strangers. You kind of, you're going to rein yourself in when you're home. You just kind of, you are who you are. Right. I, I thought it was a pretty gut wrenching movie uh, oh, and good. well done. Thanks man. Yeah, I don't I'm- cry though. I'm a cyborg. I, I was just, I basically just laugh at my wife when she starts crying, but it, even I was touched. What's wrong with you? I don't know. So I'm a divor- kid of divorce. So, you know, we're all dead inside. <laughs> Uh, Good luck with that movie. uh, Oh, thanks, buddy. Have you ever had um, Ham on your show? Oh yeah, he's been on, huh? Yeah. What you get along with him? Uh, I was just thinking about who could play people. Yeah, he plays on my baseball team. So he he plays. So Ham and I, he's been on a few times. One of the things, the last time he was on, we were talking about how his sports movie mortality rate was about to run out because he's like a really good baseball player, and it's like you. You've got, well, I mean, for an actor, um, you've got to, you've got to do this now. Like you're going to hit a point where it's not realistic anymore that you're like the, you know, Dennis Quaid and the rookie Yeah. where Dennis Quaid was probably like 49 in real life. And it was really pushing it, but he was playing a guy who was like 39 in real life. So it was okay. But I think with Ham, Ham's think got Ham's, like a year left. Ham's, no, he doesn't. He's passed. You it's think expi- he's passed? Okay. It's expired. Yeah. It's expired. I think he, he did million dollar arm. He was yeah, already... I produced that with him. That's how we got to know each other. No yeah. way. You produced yeah. that movie? Yeah. We're a thanks, huge movie thanks on airplanes. Thanks for bringing that to me, buddy. 
<laughs> huge, huge. Good. I appreciate it. Good looking out. Thanks for bringing me that. Everybody loved that movie. And then people just saw it on demand and on airplanes. And it's just like one of those things. Does yeah. It went as on the weekend against some other monster movie and it just kind of went away. That eh, wasn't that good. Pretty decent. <laughs> <laughs> it was like 15 minutes too long. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was great. It was great. It looked really beautiful too. I loved it being in India. I so thought like, it was 15 minutes too long. My big argument at the time was like, if I'm taking my son to this, it can't be more than two hours. Yeah. Like my son, this is a movie that like an eight-year-old kid could could see, right? And yeah. no eight-year-old kid wants to be in a theater for two hours and five minutes. Yeah, you got you to gotta get through that story a little bit faster. Uh, that's true. But Hammy, Hammy could do like a guy uh, who's gone to like fantasy camp. Like an older man who goes down to fantasy and rediscovered. Ham, Ham had one good year when he played with us. He, he had 400. That was his best year by far. Really? Oh, so yeah. what, what is this baseball team? Can you tell? Is This is an L.A. baseball team of Hollywood people, and it and it's like fast pitch? <laughs> it's not Hollywood people. It's fast pitch. It's not Hollywood people. It just happens to have me and Ham on the team. Uh, but mostly it's made up of like guys who are real athletes. I started it about 10 years ago. as like the L.A. Park and Rec League. And we were awful. We got beat there. We put the we we got a little bit better. And like third year in, we won that thing. Guys wanted we won the LA City there. Then people wanted to step it up to the a wood bat league, which we did. Wood bat league, Jesus. Oh yeah, and um, we we got demolished. Uh, we have not yet won that uh, that league, but we've had some good showings. The first season we lost. You know, most games we were mercyed. You know, it was like a, we play like seven innings. We usually it lost by, you know, 14 runs after the fifth and they just called it off or something. Second season, though, we did a lot better. Um, and I my batting average hovers around 100. And what position are you? Third base. So 100. I'm trying to think of what Red Sox player. No one has ever hit, had that bad an average <laughs> yeah, and the, stayed the, in the game. Terrible average third baseman. I don't, I don't know who that would be. <laughs> uh, I had one year where I hit 300, but I only played like three games, maybe. Um, but Hammy's done. Hammy's better. He plays first, and he 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 did have one year where he hit over 400. I think all that is, is behind both of us now. Um, but next time you have an idea for a, for a sports movie, don't bring it to John. Call me up. I'm going to bring it to you. I've, I've, and if you ever want to start a triple A baseball team in the Hollywood area that we call the Hollywood stars. I'm in. I've always felt like that idea could work. Put it in Van Nuys, 15,000 seat stadium. I just feel like people would go. I love it. They, it the- it's not going to matter that it's 108 degrees in July. People are still going to like it. They're still going to have a good time. That's part of the fun. What was that team? Who's that guy who started that like really kind of rough around the edges uh, club, like minor league club in like Portland or somewhere? He, he had a book. There's a book written about them. That's a pretty good story. I, gotta find I don't that. know that one. Well, good luck with your movie. It was good seeing thanks, you. Man. Uh, good nice. luck to Tom Brady. And uh, thanks for coming on. Okay. Thanks for having me.